Hey, it's Francis. You know, every once in a while, we get to spend some time with an icon in the world of food and get into their backstory. We don't often get to do that with two icons of one show. Well, here's one of those from last year where we got to talk to the great Nigella Lawson and Prue Leaf from the Great British Baking Show. Have a listen. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So if you're like me, you have spent dozens of evenings over the past few years watching The Great British Baking Show. It's such a sweet, mellow hour, you know? It's a competition show where the contestants are all regular people or just doing their best. They really seem to genuinely like each other. And the stakes are never that much higher than a nice piece of cake. It's a balm for these intense times, but that's not to say that the show doesn't have character. A lot of that character comes from the judges. For the past five seasons, Prue Leaf has been one of those judges, the one with the fabulous sense of style and who always likes it when the bakers booze up their desserts a little. She's caring and supportive, and before you start thinking, though, that she's just some nice lady on TV who likes rum cake, she's got a whole groundbreaking history as a chef, restaurateur, and cooking teacher. She's got a new book called Bliss on Toast, and she joins us now. Hi, Prue. It is so lovely to have you in the studio. How are you? I'm really well, and I'm loving New York. And it's such an honor to be on this podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. And New York loves you, too. So we're glad to have you. And, uh, you know, you, you, you've flown uh, quite a way to get here to talk about something as important as we're going to talk about. So I want to treat it with the level of respect that it deserves. <laughs> and that is, um, I love toast. Well, I think it deserves respect. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves it. So how did you come to write a book about food on toast? Well, two things. One was that um, in lockdown, I was making food for two for months and months and months, just for me and my husband. And and I'm a caterer and a restaurateur. I cannot cook for two all the time. It's just too boring. <laughs> so, of course, I'd make roast chicken or or casserole or something for four people at least. Sure. And then, of course, we'd have to eat it leftovers because I'm much too Scottish to ever throw anything away. So, <laughs> And all these things would end up on toast. And then I realized, actually, everything tastes better on toast. <laughs> so that was the origin of, of the toast. And the other thing is that I've been doing recently a, a review of hospital food, trying to help the National Health Service mm. do better food in hospitals. And the single biggest complaint we had from patients was that there was no toast, that they couldn't get toast. You know, toast is so comforting. It's what we, at least the Brits, we all go yeah. to toast. If you're not feeling well, even if you're feeling quite sick, you can eat a bit of dry toast and it's really comforting. Then you get a bit better and you want toast with butter on it. And then if you're a Brit, you want toast with butter and marmalade on it. Toast is a sort of national sacred thing. And to not be able to get a bit of toast in hospital is disgraceful. You know, it's funny because I, when I was young, when I was sick, you know, if my mother would say, you shouldn't eat any food, but you should eat toast. Mm. And now that I look back on it, I think my family's Chinese. Like we, bread exists, but it's not like our, our staff of life. I don't know why <laughs> but she's toast, still gave you toast and not rice. Well, she grew up in Hong Kong, which was a British colony. Yeah. So maybe she had been inculcated yeah. with this British love of toast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, um, so looking at the book, which is you know tidy and small and lovely, and the recipes are very simple. Mm-hmm. 
they all look fabulous. And there you have a great note in there, which is, you know, it's a cookbook. It's about toast. I mean, frankly, you should be able to look at most of the pictures and just be able to make this thing. So mm -hmm. it's really about the combinations. There are some really lovely recipes in there as well. But in thinking about putting it together, I know you said everything tastes better on toast, but I'm mm -hmm. sure you have ideas about what rules about you know, what you exactly. follow when composing. Exactly. I think that um, all trained chefs and most people who have become good cooks end up knowing what goes with what. Sure. Um, if something is very rich, you need something which is a little bit acidic to cut through that richness. Mm -hmm. If something's very dry, it needs something creamy or oily to go with it and so on. So sometimes it's about texture. Sometimes it's about taste. You want a contrast of taste. Okay. And you don't want too many flavors, I think. Mm, okay. The problem with a lot of bad cooks, frankly, is they've put more, too many flavors in. And mm. then it's like mixing a pot of colors you know, if a child has a paint box and they mix mm. every single color together, which they always do, yeah. <laughs> you end up with brown. Yeah, it's just very, always very boring. Brown. Yeah, <laughs> and the same thing happens with your taste buds. If you have too many flavors, it, there's no flavor. So, so I think what I'm trying to do with the Bliss on Toasts is to give people inspiration to do other things. Mostly when I write recipes, I'm rather boring about it. I say, if you want it to work, follow the recipe. Don't tell me you don't like it. And then it turns out you've put in, if you thought if I put one glass of sherry in it, three glasses would be three <laughs> times better. It wouldn't. You know, you can... I've, I've watched you on TV. I think so, most of the time you would say that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I do like a bit of sherry. But, <laughs> but, no. but right, that's perhaps a bad example. But... Um, a lot of bad cooking comes from people not following the recipe. Sure, sure. If they, you know, cooks, professional cookery writers spend ages, you know this, getting the recipe right, getting the measurements right. So it's, it's better to follow them. But in this book, I'm not saying that at all. The whole idea was that people are too busy mm -hmm. and they have no time and no money. So basically, these things on toast are generally not expensive. There are a few luxury things there. But Those most are of luxuries, them, yeah. But most of them are about a dollar. You mm -hmm, know, the, sure. the ingredients cost about a dollar. And I also think that we shouldn't be snobbish about good store-covered ingredients. I mean, not everybody wants to make their own mayonnaise or their sure. own hollandaise or their own even flatbread. I've given recipes at the back from how to do these things yourself if you really want to. But I'm not expecting people to do that. I think it's perfectly legitimate to have um, tapenade out of a jar or mm -hmm, pesto mm -hmm. out of a jar or mayonnaise out of a jar. Why not, for goodness sake? Yeah, for so. sure. Although there is a wonderful recipe in there that is for pesto that I don't think you can buy out of a jar because you call it English pesto. Yeah. And the, instead of basil, pine nuts, and parmesan, you have uh, parsley, walnuts, and um, cheddar. Yeah. And that really sounds good. fabulous. And you it just make it like fairly good. And, and rapeseed oil instead of olive oil. Mm -hmm. And it is lighter than pesto. You know, pesto is absolutely delicious because of that heavy basil and its richness of the olive oil. But you can't eat a lot of it because it's, it's just very powerful. Mm -hmm. yeah. The English pesto is much milder. And I actually prefer it. Is that, was that yeah. your invention? Or is that yeah, again? yeah. No, I, I invented it actually for a book a few, few books back. But... You get lots of pestos now made of yeah. all sorts of things. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So the recipes, again, they're as much suggestions as they are mm. recipes. They're all very simple. And I love that spirit that you talked about. But you also 
famously ran a restaurant with a Michelin star. Mm-hmm. When you were one of the, maybe only, uh, certainly one of the only women mm-hmm. uh, who had a restaurant with a Michelin star in London at the time. How did you get into food? Well, I grew up in South Africa. And it's, to be honest, I never thought of being a cook in South Africa, mostly because it was under the apartheid, you know, absolutely iniquitous apartheid regime. Mm-hmm. And there was job divisions, you know, you couldn't be a, you couldn't even be a bricklayer if you were black. But on the other hand, it was very difficult for a white woman to be a cook. Mm. And so I, I grew up with really good food. We had a Zulu cook who was a great chef. Mm-hmm. He had been a top chef in a, a French restaurant. Um, and he could have taught me to cook, but it never occurred to my family or indeed to me that I should go in the kitchen. Just, mm-hmm. you know. So it was a very strange life. But, of course, I didn't think it was strange because I was... It was normal, you know, yeah. It was normal for me. And so it wasn't until I got to Paris that I realized just how important food is. You know, you'd go to a, a brasserie or a cafe and stand at the bar. And I remember hearing some guy, who was obviously a captain of industry or something, talking with his chauffeur, his driver, about where he was going to eat that night. And they mm. were discussing food. And the metro worker next to the driver who joined in, and they were all talking knowledgeably about where the best, uh, who made the best um, steak frites and, mm-hmm. and where they, uh, I remember somebody talking about a restaurant where they grew their own raspberries and things. And I thought, nobody talks about food. When I, I was growing up, food, there were about five things you never talked about. You never talked about God. You never talked about religion, never talked about politics, didn't talk about sex. You didn't talk about food. God knows what they did talk about. <laughs> all of these things were not polite. Money, you didn't talk about money sure. either. So, and all of those are the interesting things. <laughs> I don't know what we talked about. I mean, my mother was an actress, so I guess we talked about theatre a lot and, and books and things, but we didn't talk about those things. And so there I was in France with people talking about food and we were eating wonderful food. I was eating really good food in the family I stayed in. I was a um, mother's help, you know, an au pair. Mm-hmm. And I remember the very first day I learned so much because the first day we went before breakfast to buy the bread, which the French do before breakfast every morning. Mm-hmm. And we went to three shops, one for the baguettes, one for the croissant, and one for the cake. And I said, well, why don't we buy everything at one? Because they, they all sell everything. And she looked at me as if she, I was completely mad. She said, because this guy has the best croissant. This guy has the best baguette. And then we made the children's lunch that day. And she, I mean, the very fact that I spoke English would guarantee in her mind that I couldn't cook. And she was quite right. So I wasn't allowed to touch the food. But she made for the children who were six months old and 18 months old. So they were two babies, a toddler and a baby. And we made, she made two little plates with steak, potatoes and salad. And the little steaks were seared on both sides. So they were rare in the middle and nice and brown on the outside. She rolled the new potatoes in butter with a bit of chives and she turned the lettuce leaves in French dressing, all homemade. Mm. And she made these two perfect plates. And then I liquidized the babies and she chopped up the toddlers. And the toddler (laughs) sat in a high chair and the baby on my lap and we sat down to have lunch. And that was my whole food philosophy learnt in that day Mm. because it was, 
I've sort of never deviated from it. It's about good ingredients bought with a great deal of care, mm-hmm. cooking pretty well at the last minute and doing it with love and attention and mm-hmm. care, mm-hmm. making it look appetizing, and then sitting down and eating it knees under, round a table and talking to mm. the children and talking to each other. And I think, you know, if, I, if we could just get children to learn to love good food like that, we would not have an obesity problem. We wouldn't have half the problems we have if children just grew up learning to love good food. But I've been, I've been saying this for 50 years, Francis, and nobody's ever taken a blind bit of notice. I've made no difference. <laughs> but I really believe it, that we should teach children to eat. And the way you teach children to eat is to teach them to cook and to teach them about food and to teach them um, to interest them in food. Yeah, for sure. We'll be back with more of Prue Leaf, author of Bliss on Toast. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending time with the British cooking icon and star of the Great British Baking Show, Prue Leaf. Let's get back to it with her. At some point, you decided to go to culinary school. You moved to, from Paris to London That's to go right. to culinary school. Yeah, I yeah. think this was in 1916? Yeah, about 16, yeah. What was culinary school in London in 1960 like? Well, I went to the Cordon Bleu. And it was a really good cookery school. It was uh, the techniques were all classic French-based sure. technique. We learned, you know, all the classic French dishes. But there was a sort of English country house feeling about the food. You know, it wasn't over decorated. It wasn't, um, you know, carving sort of Snow White out of butter or lard and making the Eiffel Tower out of woven potato bits or something. And the Cordon Bleu, because it had started as a, a school to teach domestic cooks how to cook, oh, it wasn't all about this hotel decoration stuff. It okay. was much more about the quality of food. And so I learned a lot there. And then I had a bed sitter in London. And while I was still at school, I started to become a kind of cook for hire and I'd go around and do your dinner party and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. And then I'd built up a little... 
you know, little following of customers all by word of mouth. And so that's how I started. Yeah. And you said you would, <laughs> when we spoke earlier, you said you've made sandwiches for construction workers yeah. and royal parties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the end, I had hugely expensive clients. And of course, when I opened a restaurant, I got a lot of publicity because I was a woman. And as you said, there were not very many women who had smart restaurants. And even before we had a Michelin star, which did take a very long time to get, um, I had a lot of smart clientele because one of the reasons, I think, was because we had no rules. I didn't have a dress code. I've never thought restaurateurs mm -hmm. should tell customers, you know, what they're to eat, what they're to drink. You know, if they want... I mean, nobody ever did it, but if somebody wanted to put a blob of ice cream into Chateau Latour first-growth wine and they've bought it, they've got a perfect right to do it, and I would want my waiters to be cooperative and charming about it, not snobbish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we had no dress code, and we stayed open very late, and that meant that the theatre crowd could come after the theatre. Mm -hmm. And the music crowd would come. And so right at the beginning, from the very beginning, we had top actors like Alec Guinness and John Gilgood. And, and we had Lulu and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And all these people came to the restaurant. Um, and really, we weren't that good. <laughs> we weren't that good. But, but I had a lot of publicity because I was a woman. So, you know, people often say, how did you break the glass ceiling? But because I was always self-employed, there was no glass ceiling. I was making the rules. You know, women suffer when they've got a boss who is, you know, institutionally anti-women. Mm -hmm. But if um, you're your own boss, it's much easier. When you say you weren't that good... Um... Well, you know what? What did that look like? And, and well, how did you get better? Because presumably you did. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, even 10 years into my thing, I would look at my first menus and think, oh, God, that sounds dreadful. Because sometimes I would do things that I thought I ought to have on the menu because other restaurants had them or because somebody had recommended them. I mean, I remember once we had a dish on the menu which my head chef wanted to put on. And I honestly think it's the most disgusting dish that has ever existed. And I'd be interested to hear if any of your listeners have ever eaten it. It's called Oysters Mornay, and it's basically cooked oysters under a cheese sauce. Well, I mean, what a crime. I mean, I don't like cooked oysters anyway. I think they, oysters should be absolutely as they come out of the sea. Mm -hmm. I don't even put vinegar on them. I just swallow them. Yeah, I like them. <laughs> as they are. Straight, yeah. And, and traditionally, oysters used to go into steak and kidney pies and things to bulk sure, them up, sure. just extra protein. And it was just a cheap way well, of cheaper than the steak. Cheaper yeah. than the steak. But, um, but oysters mornay is truly disgusting. <laughs> and we used, to, we used to sell it. I mean, I don't remember anybody ever complaining about it. So presumably uh, not everybody hated it. <laughs> and also, you know, I've been doing this one-woman show. And, and one of the reasons I'm in New York is because we – had a tryout the other night in the Daryl Roth Theatre in um, Union Square. Mm. And to be honest, Francis, that's the first time I've enjoyed it being this show. And I absolutely loved it because I love the audience. I'd done four in England and I 
was quite nervous and I didn't really enjoy it very much. Mm. But this was fantastic and I loved it. So now I'm going to go ahead and do two more in New York and then next year I'll do big tours. But anyhow, as part of the show, we've got film clips coming up behind me and, and photographs jumping up as I'm talking about the restaurant and I'm talking about how much I loved that, that restaurant, which I had for 25 years. And I, I just love being a restaurateur. So there's a long clip about it, but it ends up with one of the waiters. And we had these first course trolleys, big trolleys with choice on the trolley. And, and the waiter is dishing up food that looks so clumsy and so mm-hmm. ugly. And you just been listening to me talking about how delicate food should be and how light the first courses have to be, otherwise people won't buy a second course. And, and, and I'm banging on about the importance of elegance. And then the picture is sort of half a melon filled with prawns and Murray Rose sauce or something. <laughs> it looks absolutely clumsy and terrible. <laughs> Anyway, it's quite funny. <laughs> well, you are a very harsh judge of your own restaurant, it turns out. Um, and, you know, I think that brings us to, you know, we'll fast forward a few decades and here we are today where, you know, most people in the States know of you as a judge on the Great British Bake Off. Mm. Which I always forget. Is that the English title or maybe our that, title? Bake Off is the English title. Okay, so we baking call it. Baking shows. Yeah, you we call, call it the it Great baking. British Baking Show, even though I, in my mind, it's always going to be the Bake Off. Mm. Um, and we, we know you as one of the judges on the show, and in particular, a, a supportive and kind and loving judge. Um, so it's sort of funny to hear you talk about your restaurant just being god-awful. Um, <laughs> it wasn't all god-awful. You know, yeah, yeah, that's why I, I kept trying to lead you. Tell us about what was good, but you kept wanting to talk about how it was bad. But So tell us about your experience on the show. You've been on for, what is it now, like four or five seasons? Uh-huh. Um, you were previously also a judge on a different show. Where Great the, British Menu. Yeah, where the contestants were professional chefs. Do you approach judging a professional chef differently than you do the amateur bakers on No, I don't. I mean, I've judged food because I had a chef school, mm-hmm. which is still very successful and still there, and another one in South Africa. I have judged thousands and thousands of students' exam dishes, if you like. <laughs> so I'm... I'm not, I don't think, the greatest baker in the world, but I'm a damn good set of taste buds. <laughs> and, um, and I don't judge anything any differently. I just do say what I think. Sure. And I suppose with Great British Menu, with professional chefs, I would be a little bit tougher if I thought that they were doing something really stupid. <laughs> like occasionally professional chefs are so keen to show all their skills at once Mm -hmm. that they will give you a plate with far too many tastes on it. You know, there'll be a a drizzle of this and a bit of foam of that and a a parmesan crisp and then some crumbly stuff. And then there'll be a couple of sauces and two or three main ingredients. And and it's it's just exhausting. Mm -hmm. So I would say so (laughs) quite (laughs) bluntly because I think they should know better. And I went recently to a little restaurant in my local town, which is by a really top head chef. Anyway, when he told me it was a tasting menu, my heart sinks at a tasting menu. I know it's going to take forever. I'm going to feel I've eaten far too much. But he had probably, his tasting menu was only six dishes, but none of them were bigger than a sort of small hen's egg. Mm -hmm. So even though you'd eaten six things... They were all exquisite. 
None of them had more than four ingredients in them, mm. but the combination of ingredients was absolutely fantastic. So I, that's the way I think chefy chefs should go, mm. rather than too much stuff on the plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's only a hen's egg's worth of food, they could probably put it on a piece of yeah. toast. Yeah, and just serve it to you that way. Even better on a bit of toast. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the baking show. You know, the show has as. You know, obviously immensely popular in the UK, also here in the States. And I think the people who talk about it, the fans of the show, you know, the first thing we always say is how much it's about the feeling. There is this sort of uh, positive, lovely presence, a kindness to the show. What's the feeling like on set? Exactly that. You know, the company makes Bake Off is called Love Productions. (laughs) And my husband always says they are love by name and love by nature. Yeah. Some of those cameramen have been in the show for 17 years or whatever it is, for no, what, 15 years, mm-hmm. for since Bake Off started. Um, most of them have been there five years or 10 years. Nobody leaves because it's really lovely. I have never heard anybody quarrel on that set. Hmm. Nobody getting crossed. You know, the only time I remember being a little bit amazed and finding, you know, Paul's eyes rolling to heaven, was when we we were filming the great American baking show, which we're doing and will come out next year. Mm -hmm. And that will be live streamed by Roku. And it's all American contestants. So I had thought it would be a little bit more difficult because most of the game shows that I've seen in America, contestants are quite aggressive, really. <laughs> sure. There's this famous cliche line of, I'm not here to make friends. Yeah. There's always someone who says, I'm not here to make friends. Oh, no. Well, that's nonsense. You should be there to make friends. Anyway, so we were filming the American show. And to be honest, I'll tell you what, the, the atmosphere in the tent, it just, all those American contestants were exactly like the British ones. They were mm. supportive. They, were, they bonded well. They were absolutely a delight. Going back to the, the, the British version, I feel like a lot of ways that show, that was notable to me when I first started watching it. I, at first, I, I, I like sort of noticed this, and then a few seasons in, I was like, oh, this must be sort of intentional. Must, there's, there's, a, there's a philosophy behind this. And I started to think that the show really seems like in the casting, that it really leans into the racial and ethnic diversity of a contemporary Britain. It really sort of shows this modern idea of what... Mm. Britain is, right? And it is a place of many different cultures. Yeah, it is. And I think there's a lot of people who love it for that. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to talk about Mexican Week because that did really cause quite a stir and a lot of viewers were upset by what they thought were stereotypical jokes or maybe, you know, letting on some ignorance. What is your thought on that? Well, to be honest, I was really upset when I saw how much distress it had caused Mm -hmm. because as you say Bake Off is really proud of the fact that they are very respectful about I mean when you do somebody else's cuisine it should be you're doing it because you want to celebrate it Mm -hmm. and because you like it and so the idea that we would be anyway patronizing or mocking or I mean to be honest you know, I'm sure if we did it again, we would have not done it exactly like that because we did not expect, um, did not imagine for a minute and certainly never intended to make to be offensive to anybody mm-hmm. because, as you say, that's not the Bake Up show. And, and the whole 
philosophy is diversity and and kindness and tolerance and so on. But I think there are only three challenges. So we picked probably too much of a maybe they were too cliched the the the, the, the tacos or the whatever. Mm-hmm. But certainly it wasn't. In t- we have to have something that people will recognize as, as Mexican. Mm-hmm. And I think the people who were upset felt that we weren't celebrating what's happened in Mexico now and would have much rather we had taken dishes that were more interesting, more modern, whatever. So, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I'm just, I know Everybody felt, God, we did not mean to offend anybody. How could that have happened? Sure. And, of course, those, the, the jokes, which perhaps were a bit, you know, certainly did cause a bit of offence, those boys make bad jokes all the time. Sure. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> they behave like 15-year-olds, and that's what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did think... You we... think it was, did you think it was bad? You know, I, I think I certainly understand a perspective where here's an opportunity to showcase something that, you know, I, I, I take this out of like how I saw it as a viewer as myself. Mm-hmm. But if I saw this as a viewer where, you know, I had an emotional or a, a family connection yeah. to Mexican culture or cuisine. I think probably, you know, maybe, the, you know, my perspective would have been something like that. Like, oh, you could have showcased less stereotypical items or something like that. Yeah. And I think the thing with the jokes is it's not so much, uh, oh, my God, they said these horrible things. But it's more like everyone's having a bit of a laugh about how little they know about mm. us. And that just doesn't feel nice. Mm. So I can certainly understand that. On some level, I, I wonder why this theme was chosen because, like, I watch it as an American, and as an American, you know, we are, you know, we're literally close to Mexico, and Mexican cuisine is is, is so influential here. Um, and then I think about it, the fact that it's and a you're British much show. more knowledgeable. Than- yeah, so like, there are certain things that we we just we just have a different perspective on, just from proximity. And a little bit, I was like, oh, if there was like an American show, and like the theme was like Swiss cuisine, and everyone's like, I don't know anything about Swiss cuisine. Like, I sort of, it, it I sort of. I was curious as to why that theme was chosen for a, a, a British show. Well, I mean, we have, to, you know, we often do choose other um, nations' food mm-hmm, just yeah. because it's more interesting, you know, we want to. And generally, it's a celebration, and we certainly mean it to be a celebration, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. obviously we got that one a bit wrong. Yeah. But, you know, this is how we learn, right? And we move on in the future. If you, if you have one more minute, I would love to ask you, where did you get your fashion sense? <laughs> my my obsession with color you mean. I, I love the big color the colorful glasses big jewelry do you have a sense of why you're drawn to those things well i think it may be because i'm south african and and you know it's a land of strong color mm. um look at african jewelry it's nearly always red green white mm-hmm. african colors but um I've always liked it, but then when I married my husband, you know, I'm famous um, for geriatric love. I mean, I fell, <laughs> I fell in, I fell in love with my husband when I was seventy, and um, 
he was a fashion designer, so he's mm. been very encouraging because he's, you know, I'll often put on a pair of earrings and I'll say, is this too much? And I'll say, no, no, wear a bracelet as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, I, I, honestly, Francis, I think that too many women who are, get to, you know, past middle age, they think that they somehow have to go and sit and knit in the corner or some mm. old-fashioned idea of how women should behave. Women will write to me and say, you know, I so admire you because you wear these bright colors. Um, I would love to do that, but and I used to in my youth, but now I feel I can't. It's not appropriate. Hmm. What do you mean it's not appropriate? Older women need more help than young ones anyway. Well, young women can just look great because they are young and they're beautiful. Um, I'm trying to get older women to realize that if they put on a yellow coat in the middle of winter, it'll cheer them up. Hmm. Color is cheerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, well, help or not, I, do, I I hear you on on the idea of this notion of women as they age are told, oh, your time to be seen is is yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. And I love the idea of um, yeah. no saying, well, first of all, what I put on is for me, not necessarily yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. And everyone has the right to look how they want. Absolutely. Look in a way that makes absolutely. them happy. I love that. And I um, I ended up. You know, designing my own specs because I couldn't get ones with enough color on them. Now there's lots of colored specs around. Well, thank you for bringing your color into this room, this drab gray studio. It's like hotels, you know. Now hotels are all so gray and boring. <laughs> it was great to talk with you, Prue. Thank you, Francis. I enjoyed it a lot. Leaf is a judge on The Great British Baking Show and author of a new book, Bliss on Toast. You can find her recipe for tomatoes with English pesto on toasted focaccia at splendidtable.org. Coming up, another iconic British cook, the incredible Nigella Lawson. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is a show for curious cooks and eaters. Nigella Lawson needs almost no introduction, Right. The British cooking icon is one of the greatest food writers in the English language. She starred in many TV shows on both sides of the Atlantic and is the author of her latest book, Cook, Eat, Repeat. 
So the last time she joined us a few years ago, she defended the honor of home cooking. And in her latest book, she writes about her love of simple ingredients and how cooking becomes a part of life. Nigella, it is so great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Oh, it's so wonderful to see you. It just feels like such a celebration to be able to do this face to face. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming to our country. Oh, such a pleasure. And thank you for writing this book. It's truly a beautiful read. I mean, it's it's an interesting cookbook because it's it's almost more, I might say, a collection of essays and stories as it is recipes. Although there are many, many recipes in it, and you know, as a as a writer, as an editor, reading it is such a pleasure. Like no one describes food the way you do. Well,、it's、thank you.、Amazing. I mean, I think that you know, a cookbook can take many forms. Sure, and we all need to find a way to. To bring not only the recipes be right, but perhaps also to explain something of the sensibility,、mm-hmm. and it has to be our voice. You know, we all have our own voice, and it's so important that a cookbook has a voice. Sure, yeah, and that can be so varied. And in a way, you don't want this sort of feeling of every cookbook sounding like another one. Sure. And I, and I and that's one of the things that so interests me about writing about food. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. Well, I mean, this is your twelfth book, and you know, so you you you've done it plenty. It's always frightening. Is it? Well, to some extent, most things that are worth doing are a bit frightening. Sure.、Uh, and I think that the more books you do, the harder it is in terms of recipes because you don't. Ever, I don't ever want to put a recipe in just for the sake of having a recipe. Sure, but I think that certain things do make you nervous, but that's also what hones your focus.、Mm. And was it Eleanor Roosevelt who said you have to do one thing that frightens you every day? And I think that to some extent, you can't expect to take on something that. You feel so heartfelt about, and to feel casual about it, that would be disastrous.、Mm. So I, I don't mean you know I was handicapped by fear, but I certainly there's always that fear when you start a book. Yeah, am I going to be able to do it? But I think it, the before doing anything is difficult. Sure, I love it when I'm writing, but it can take me quite a lot to. Propel myself into the chair by the computer. <laughs>、yeah. It's funny. I have a, a friend whose father always had that adage: it's "Like the hardest part of any、uh, of any project is actually getting into the chair." <laughs> yes, and that's so true for everything, really. Well, since we're talking about this book, I and this idea of recipes, you start this book actually with an essay that asks the question: "What is a recipe?" Having again written out twelve cookbooks, what do you mean by asking that question? Well, I think how people have viewed the recipe does change as fashions for cooking and、mm. the age we live in.、Mm. So, so if you were to go far back in time, you would be unlikely to find measurements all the time. Sure, it would be take some butter, you know, mix it to a paste with some flour.、Mm-hmm. So that's what a recipe would have been thought of then. Sure. And then you get the sort of recipes which are now very, very detailed. I mean, a recipe can take many forms, but a recipe that is very, very detailed and gives absolutely everything, but from a more technical point of view, without somehow trying to evoke what the recipe might 
appeal to in a person or why mm. it's there. And then a recipe, to a certain extent, can be something of a literary endeavour because you're trying to use language mm -hmm. to allow the reader to have sensation of what it might feel like either <laughs> to roll that dough out or the smell of a stew as you add some fennel seeds or something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. for me, I think it's about taking people away both to enjoy the lingering on the page, but you have to be able to, uh, the, the reader has somehow to feel she or he in the kitchen. Yeah while they're reading it, and it makes them more likely to go there. I think it has to straddle many disciplines. But for me also, cooking, or therefore the recipe form, is also um, takes in anthropology. Mm. And it takes in social history and the movement of people. And so there's so much going on in a recipe. It's so interesting to see all these different components. And it's the dynamic between all those disciplines, if you like, <laughs> that makes makes recipes so, for me, enduringly interesting and from different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, but that's all well and good. Having said all those things, that's true. But a recipe also has to be 100% reliable and it has to aid the reader. And I would say, furthermore, in an ideal world, I would like to think when I write a recipe that although I am giving the reader, you know, very clear instructions, I would hope also that I'm also imparting just something about the nature of cooking itself. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to get the balance right yeah. and to get the balance right while not writing a book that's heavier than, you know, than a suitcase of beer. <laughs> but nevertheless, I, do, I try, I, I try, but I think brevity is not always an indication of ease, you know, that there's such a fashion in cookbooks uh, that For most sure, editors want, want people, I understand this, not to have to turn a page when they're following a recipe. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel sometimes uh, when a recipe is, is sort of written to that prescriptive model, regardless of what the recipe is, it can mean you leave out uh, the sort of markers you could be offering your readers about not just say give it 20 minutes but you want to say by which time it will have slightly begun coming away at mm -hmm. the sides of the pan and mm -hmm. may begin splitting mm -hmm. on top if you haven't got time to add the details I think it's it, it makes it harder for the cook even though it might make it nice and neat and clear on the page I totally I totally understand what you're saying both as someone who has written recipes in the past and now as an editor where I mm. edit you know literally hundreds of them yeah. at a time uh, for cookbooks but you know what made me really really hyper aware of that was a few days ago I, this was mm. so sweet my uh, my child who's in second grade yeah uh, her teacher came to me and said hey would you like to come in one day and do a little cooking class for our kids and yeah. I thought oh that'd be so fun and I came in, and it was supposed to be a Halloween, so um, you know the kids were going to be eating just ungodly amounts of candy. And yes. I thought, how about I come in and I'll show you how to make um, roasted broccoli? Yes. Because uh, my kid really loves roasted broccoli, and maybe some of the kids in class will too, and it would be a nice way to yes. you know, get kids to eat their vegetables that day. So she said, sure. It was actually amazing. I was shocked at how many of the kids in the class love broccoli. Yes. So that was amazing. But – I also wanted to make sure that I had a written recipe for the kids to take home if they want to make it, you know, with their, yes. their grown-ups at home or whatever. And 
I did exactly what you were thinking of, which is I wanted to make sure there was detail. You know, really explain it,、mm. assuming the the child knows nothing of cooking.、Right? Yes, this is how you would cut it. How big should it be? I like to use my fingers for this,、mm-hmm. but you can use a knife. Roast it till it looks like this. Move it on the pan so it's all in one layer, so it doesn't、yes. look crowded. Like yes, you know, da 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 da. And I did that with the spirit of let me tell you everything you would need to know to make this in case、yes. you've never made this before.、Yes. So really simplify it. And then I print it out, and I realized I had an entire sheet of paper entirely covered in words. <laughs> Oh, and、no. I'm going to hand a seven-year-old <laughs> the level of、yes. intimidation to see that much, you know, language on a page. And then people think this must be so complicated. Exactly. It's a very it's a conundrum actually. It's, it's very hard to get right. Did you, in the end, make it much finer? Did you? No, I just, I, I, I、yeah. just we just went with it、yes. and just figured that.、Um, Well, it's time to go to school.、So. Yes, you can <laughs> carry on. To, yeah, yeah and you do have a job. You know, you, yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay, so actually, let's get to one of the recipes in this book.、Mm. Um, it, it's funny for me to say the recipes in the book because it's, I, I, again, it's such a fascinating read, and there are recipes in the traditional style of ingredient list、yes. and method, but then. In the headnote to that recipe,、mm. you have other recipes. That oh, you're just so、writing. many! It's like a s- stream of culinary consciousness. <laughs>、um, but I want to get to one of the dishes yes, in particular because I、um, I'm so drawn to it, and it's the smoky squid and beans, which has such a like a mysterious, cool ring to it. But it's it seems very simple, right? It just seems、mm. like you warm up olive oil with、um, some smoked paprika, a little bit of chili, and you warm up some canned beans in that,、yes. and then you just sort of gently sauté some squid and You're kind of done. Well, yes, but I wanted to talk about you know the sort of food I rustle up for myself often when、mm. I just want something delicious, and I might not have a lot of time. And I don't think cooking needs to be complicated to have actually quite complex flavors. Sure. Various things came to me about this recipe, and I suppose what led me to it really was a love of、uh, smoked paprika. Mm-hmm. And I'm always looking for ways to use it.、Mm-hmm. So this is a dish. I just felt like saying that a recipe doesn't have to involve three hours of your time to warrant your attention.、Mm-hmm. How's this?、You、cook a bit of squid, not too much. Warm through the beans later. It's all in one just canned pot. Yes, canned beans. And then I use sherry、uh, for it. I use、uh, a montiardo, but any dry sherry. And what I find that does. Is it helps tenderize the squid? By the way, I should say, if for people who don't want alcohol, you could easily do、uh, instead of the sherry, you could easily do lemon juice or orange juice or a mixture of lemon and orange juice.、Mm-hmm. Orange, fantastic in savory cooking, I think. So then, rinsing your beans, just rinse the beans. So I have, you have to move quite fast. So I get a bowl there, I get the beans waiting, and then. So I use something that's sort of wok shaped,、mm-hmm. but also has a lid. Okay. So you use good olive oil for this when you do it because it's not going to get incredibly hot, and、mm-hmm. it's part of the dressing. Yeah. And then I always like a bit of lemon zest. Again, you could use orange zest. And now I use some red pepper flakes and sweet smoked paprika.、Mm-hmm. Now, of course. Anyone could change the amount they use. Some people might want a really fiery dish, and some people might just want it to have warmth a bit, and、yeah. a little pinprick of heat. And so that 
I just cook for a while. There's nothing much else going on. I'm not doing onions or anything like that. But I do use a bit of tomato paste, okay? And I mm-hmm. cook it for me like a minute or so. Then the beans go in. Mm-hmm. And then the oil is quite red by then from the paprika and, and the tomato paste. And the, yes, but it's even redder before a bit, you know, how chilli mm-hmm, does that. Mm-hmm. But now it's much redder, sort of orangey red. And you might need to add more water, You don't want them to go dry and sticky. And I cook them with a very low heat um, with a lid. And they're quite big, a butter beans, so you want them to be warm all the way through. So then I tip those out because the squid won't take very long and I'd rather make the beans wait than the squid. (laughs) And then there's a bit more oil, some more pepper flakes, and then I go a bit high. And then because the squid's been in the sherry or other juice, I squeeze that out so it's not too wet when it goes in the oil just because otherwise it'll spit all over you. And then I just carry on cooking them just so they have just just until they're cooked through and opaque. You don't want to overcook them. And then, um, because I don't want to waste it, all the sherry or the lemon or orange juice you have in your dish, I pour in at the very end Mm -hmm. when they're cooked through and then I just, you know, mix them with the beans and there. And then, of course, I might think oh, I need more lemon or more salt. But of course, everyone will do what they want. Sure. There isn't a right or wrong. I think if I had to say that I think that American cookbooks sometimes can be much more absolute. Yeah. And I feel I come from a land of equivocation. Or you know, That's me. <laughs> that's me. But you have to bring yourself to the dish. It is a collaboration between the ingredients and the person putting them in in a pan. And so I think at all times you have to trust your palate. And I think that makes people enjoy cooking more too because it's not about is this going to go right or wrong. It's like do I want it to taste like that or do I want it to be sharper? Right. Well, it's funny because, you know, you have this really lovely line in the book where you say a lot of people think of recipes as formulas, but you think of them as a conversation. Yes, I think of them as a conversation. I think of them also as quite an autobiographical form. Mm -hmm. Because in a way, you're telling the story of food that plays a part in your life. But you're also really giving an account of what it feels like to be cooking it. But it is a story. It's a conversation. And the, the difficulty is... I can't hear the answer of the person at home. But in a way, because of social media and things like that, you can continue the conversation... Yeah. On, I made this, but on, with this instead. Yes, or it was people lovely. can ask. Yeah. And I'm on, I can't cope with all forms of social media, although <laughs> I'm on all of them and I post and I do it myself. And I love it because often I get, someone will say, for example, you know, I, I didn't have the squid and I decided to use some, you know, bit of tuna. Well, actually, you know, tuna and beans is, has a very, you know, has a very noble tradition. Yeah. And that's good too. So I, it's lovely having the, I think the sort of cross-pollination of ideas, yeah, yeah. that's what we all love, those of us who love food. We love it when we chat to one another, and I really value that. Yeah. Well, like the people who tweeted you, I'm sure, it was a pleasure talking with you, Nigella. Oh, it's so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming. Anytime, and I hope you know I really mean that, and not in a threatening way. <laughs> <laughs> Nigella Lawson's latest book is Cook, 
eat, repeat. And you can find that recipe for smoky squid and beans at splendidtable.org. And I have to tell you, I made it for dinner last night, but made three different alterations, but that's kind of part of the deal. And it was terrific. Anyway, that is our show for today. Talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lupke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Additional thanks this week to Gary O'Keefe and Marketplace's New York Bureau. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. APM Studios.